0: But now we don't have any value. So let's say, Langdon, that we were walking down the street from different directions we were in the same city or whatever and we just met on the street so far sounds plausible right yeah and then you know when you see someone your friend on the street you you greet them and you might you might use some nickname or colloquialism right like dude or how's it going my guy or something like that right what if i yeah what if i were to like run into you and then call you a kakogen what what would you, what would you think I was telling you? What would you nope. think that word?
1: Well, it sounds like you called me a cuck, which would be a weird uh, yeah. way to greet me. It would make me mad. Probably. Hey
0: hey cuck! I should right? stop doing that.
1: Yeah <laughs> yeah that's... sup cucks sup. Uh...
0: But then you'd realize I'm not saying cucks. Right? I'm saying cuckogen.
1: Yeah, at some point I'd realize. Uh... I'd realize that wasn't the word, but I would get, I think I'd still be grumpy, but in a different way, because it's like, are you trying to trick me? Like, are you trying to throw, you know, Mm. maybe it looked the word, up, but you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So now let's, let's say that we're 1 million years into the future in Mm -hmm. maybe Rio de Janeiro, maybe, and we're kind of like a far human civilization. And we met, again, just on the street. There are still streets in this scenario. And I say, hey, Kako Jen, what would, what would you think I was calling you then?
1: Uh, probably some sort of future word for dude.
0: <laughs> so would you believe I'm calling you an alien?
1: Uh uh being that i'm not an alien i'd find that difficult but in this scenario maybe i am an alien and i haven't known this until now you know so
0: i I think that's what an alien would say
1: oh fuck Mm. (laughs) i've been out so
0: yeah welcome everyone this that conversation was pretty weird but it's probably the least weird conversation (laughs) we're gonna have on this series of episode (laughs) because this is episode zero of our analysis read through journey into gene Wolfe's the book of the new sun the goal of this episode is to kind of describe the lay of the land and understand what it is that we're about to embark on what is the importance of what we're about to embark on and how we're going to pull it off so there's not going to be any you know latest news or events happening in the world like we usually do these episodes will work a bit differently from this episode onwards from episode one onwards we'll dedicate one episode to each one of the books and i think we haven't really decided whether we're just going to read the (laughs) core quartet or whether we'll also read the fifth book um but we'll see we'll see as we go along and and how this um how this ends up happening and we'll discuss the major plot points in the books but also the themes the ideas the literary influence the aesthetics that the story touches on and so on so i will say that if you go ahead
1: oh yeah that that touches on specifically something tricky about this book for the format that we normally use. Um, we've actually, we've had a number of discussions, including one right before recording this, about how exactly we're going to approach this. We 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 generally agree. It's just that for anyone familiar with the book, the idea that you would have to have a conversation about how you would even approach talking about it makes perfect sense. Um, the book is more or less... A combination of a science fiction tale, a little bit of a fantasy tale as well, and a puzzle box. And this produces some really, strange, some really strange results when trying to talk about the book. Because you, at any given moment, have to decide what's most important. Is it the event as it's being portrayed? Is it the series of events that seems to be the plot of the book? Is it perhaps whatever the real plot is? Or is it even the buried references and buried little puzzles that he puts inside that um, thankfully are puzzles that if you don't get them, it doesn't make the book bad, but they are these enriching side avenues. It feels in a lot of ways, like his book is almost like a key example of like Easter eggs and deep lore that would show up more often in video games later on. Um, Mm -hmm. we'll, We'll talk about that kind of weird long influence of like, the book as told and then all these weird little little side paths that completely reorient things. Um but yeah just keep that in mind that a lot of <clears throat> we're going to be doing our best. It's <laughs> the best way that I can put it. <laughs> but um this is a this is a dense book. As I mentioned in previous episodes uh, when like promoting this idea to try to you know get everyone excited for it literal full books have been written analyzing this book, much in the same way that Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake have like uh, read-along guides. Now, remember I said numerous. It's not one. It's not like there's one key one that everyone goes to, because the different books that analyze it analyze on different layers. Which means that, like, on one hand, if we wanted to do a complete read of this book, we would have our work fucking cut out for us. That would be like a full, that wouldn't be like a series of episodes. That would be like a whole side project. One I'm not opposed to, but one that would be very different from what we're doing.
0: Yeah. And also that project already exists. If you just Google this book, you'll find numerous podcasts reading through it closely. And also there's a very active community online, both centered around, um, R. Gene Wolfe on Reddit, and also a website called Ultan's Library, which is a reference to um, a librarian in the book, with tons of articles on some of the puzzles, but also the influences and the allusions that Gene Wolfe um, makes in his book. So that already exists, like this very close read-through. I think what often is might be a bit missing is the connection of a lot of this to Literary tradition, and also to weird fiction, which in many ways this book heavily influenced. So the plan is, as we said, not to you know get bogged down by the details. Although at some points we'll have to get into very specific things that happen in the book. It uh, also to helps if we happen to love the details. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and in there will be excitement. In, um, yeah. And in Gene Wolfe fashion, this idea that the book can be read on several levels actually appears in the book several times. Um, The main character, which we'll get into in a second, tells you stories many times and explicitly says, there are multiple ways to understand the story that I'm telling you, and he gives you examples. The main one, or the main one in the, in the first book, which will allow us to start talking about the book itself, is when Severian, the main character, recalls a story that he read in his Brown book, which we'll get to, about one of the past utaks that are the rulers of the world or state, if you want, that Severian is in. And in that story, much like a Zen Buddhist monk, this um, Utark walks around and meets another monk sitting under a tree and he joins the monk and uh, things start to run by. First of all, there's um, a trader with a woman following him and then there's a dog and soldiers and the monk just lets them all pass. But once the dog passes, the Utark gets up and runs after it. And Severian says, there are many ways to read this story. First, you can say that the monk was wiser because he didn't let the world affect him. But then you can say that the Utark was wiser because the dog, is the, the lowest in society, is the most important. And the last answer is that you have no idea what the story is about and you misunderstood uh, the question, you should start reading over. That's actually about the actual book that we're reading. It's not about the story <laughs> of the Utark. Right? It's Gene Wolfe telling you, You can read the story multiple times, but you will never figure out what I actually meant, which is something that keeps recurring for the book.
1: a, A fun thing about that structural component, and one that makes this book so compelling to us... I'm about to say his name are you ready is how deeply <laughs> Delusian the structure is um so in a normal kind of uh yeah I, it it has to happen once every episode this is this is our guarantee um just happens yeah. um so where for a normal book you have or let's say a hypothetical normal book you have just the plot you're just analyzing the events how they make you feel and you know there's many shades to that obviously but it's still one trunk then For maybe another kind of book, you have the plot and the subtext. But even our language there builds a verticality. The plot sits on top, the subtext sits below. You know, you have the iceberg metaphor from from Hemingway. And this, in many ways, again, to nod towards Deleuze, is a kind of inverted uh, arborescent structure. You have the seed, you have, you know, the trunk and the structure that builds downward, you have you know, the branches, it's a tree in reverse. Now, what's funny about this book and about Gene Wolfe in general, actually, this isn't even just specific to this book, is how much he writes in a way that at first glance, given the way that we were talking about it, it almost seems like you can dig infinitely far down and find something. But I want you to think about that metaphor structure for a second, digging infinitely far down. That implies that there is a top, there is a vertical structure, Maybe there's a bottom. Maybe there isn't. That's not quite how this book works, as as evidenced by that little um, uh, by the little section plucked from the book that uh, that Eden just uh, read out. Um, you might think then, okay, well, what's the next most logical structure? Maybe it's a wheel. Like the bottom leads you back to the top, and so there's not necessarily a real top or bottom. They're all equally the top or the bottom. This also doesn't quite perfectly fit um, because uh, of reasons we'll get into, um, but it's closer. A better way to think of it is, quite simply, the thing that we keep bringing up from Deleuze a lot, it, it functions like a rhizome. Each of these little bubbles matter. They're not, they're not tricks. Even, even when he's not telling you the full truth, it's not like there isn't a story on the plot level. There is. And if you dig deeper into the allegories... And, like, what is the actual events or what is the actual setting? There's something real there, too. If you dig into the references, like, to our world, there's something there, too. If you dig into the puzzles, there's something there, too. Um, this is, I think, more of a categorical reason why we're not going to be doing a super close read. Because the book explodes in size once you do that. Like, like exponentially so. It's crazy. Um, but again, as captured in the little the little bit that Eden read from that excerpt from the Brown book, the point isn't which one is the true read. It's that these all just sort of sit there, um, which hopefully is also so, freeing. If If you've never read this before, hopefully that's a freeing statement that you're not reading it wrong. Yeah. If you don't get something, you're not reading it right if you get more stuff than other people. These are all just readings yeah. of the book.
0: So, so two things before we get into the meat of things. One, I think the other philosophical metaphor or structure that is important here is the eternal recurrence, you oh, know, Nietzsche's yeah. idea of time repeating because that's literally what happens in the book and I cannot stress this enough. And we'll get to it in a sec. This book is about time travel in, in a, in a way it's about a lot of things yeah, uh, it's about souls that are cool and how awesome it is to walk in nature and about torture and power. But it's also very much about time travel and the idea of loops and weird loops. That is a loop that kind of like the tree or the non-existence of the tree, doesn't you don't start from a and then you go through B and you loop back towards a. You start from a, then you go to B. And then a version of you loops back to A, but another version of you loops back to C or A1. A A prime. (laughs) A prime. Yeah, exactly. Um, So that's something that's very important to remember. And the second thing before we get into the details of what we're going to do is that the best advice that I found online on how to read this book is to read it slowly and with attention but not too slow that you start to lose the pace of the book. So you should pay attention to details and you should ask questions and you should go back and reread things, but also don't obsess over every single detail because then you'll lose the aesthetic level, which is also very good. This book is like trying to see something out of the corner of your eye, right? If you ignore it too much, then it drops off your peripheral vision. And if you focus on it, you end up seeing just one facet of it. So it's kind of like this reflexive preparedness that you just let it flow. And things will start to come to you. And some things won't. But then you'll read the book again in five years. And more will come to you. And probably again and again after that. And things will will continue to appear. Or you'll just read it once and put it aside. That's also okay. It works on all of these levels. Okay. So who is Gene Wolfe? Gene Wolfe was born in 1931 in America, and he was extremely influential on science fiction, kind of in all of its eras. He kind of like clipped the end of the golden era, wasn't in the, in the th- firmly in the golden era, but also had some communications with authors from that era. Um, but he was also a part of many different magazines and organizations to do with science fiction and has won i don't know if he's won the most awards but he's won a lot of awards including several nebulas several hugos and so on as far as influences go, and how he is tied into science fiction the main influence on him is jack vance's dying earth who we've already mentioned, right? And as we said, he's he's an asshole. His books are extremely sexist. He uses um, rape as a as a story point multiple times. Deeply and by the way, so does yeah. And also, racist, super racist. Gene Wolfe also uses um, sexual assault, and there's a lot of sexism in his books. But then there's also a lot of very progressive ideas and women play a big role in in the plot. And some of them are, you know, empowered and have agency and so on. But then there are also very sexist um, moments in his writing. He wrote Book of the New Sun in 1980. Between 1980 and 1983 is when it was published. And it's a series of four novels, most often depicted as science fantasy. In fact, he's considered to be one of the innovators of that genre, which kind of came to life at the end of the 70s and the 80s. Another one that we keep mentioning is Michael Moorcock, who also wrote a lot of science fantasy, but also Jack Vance. The idea with science fantasy is is to use Arthur C. Clarke's third law. Oh, by the way, also a huge asshole. He was a pedophile. Oh, yeah. Um, great, great writer, but he was a pedophile. Um the idea though, that, you know, a sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. What if we took that to the extreme <clears throat> and we fast forwarded a million years or maybe more, um, into the future? Well, fantasy and science kind of mix because the people can't differentiate technology and magic. The four books are The Shadow of the Torturer, The Claw of the Conciliator, The Sword of the Lictor. And the citadel of the Utak. those are the four main books of the series. They are followed I think, I think by so yeah,
1: oh, uh, one brief note. we uh there there's one additional influence on Wolf that you will feel very heavily throughout the entire thing, and that's Borhe. Um the yeah. best way that I've ever seen to describe. Gene Wolfe's writing, and it's one that Gene wolf has verified before, is basically taking Jack Vance and Borhe and fusing them together in a transporter accident. um That yeah. more or less gets you the entire sum of, uh, and obviously, for anyone familiar with them, that's that's going to be a kaleidoscope of thoughts.
0: Yeah, Sorry, that was totally my only good. injection. <laughs> yeah, all good. So the coda, as it's famously referred to, often. Um, the earth of the new sun earth with a u because that's what the denizens of this future time call earth is i think it's not as good as the main four as a book because it's I would, very I,
1: didactic. I would agree.
0: <laughs> yeah it's very didactic but it also unlocks a lot of the mysteries of the first four books it once you read it you go back to read the first four books and a lot is explained and then this whole four or five books is the first part of the solar cycle after that there's another sub-series called the book of the long sun and then the book of the short sun which um the first one is four volumes and the second one is three volumes and together they are considered the entire cycle long sun was also nominated for nebula awards two of them and schultze is also incredible it's also very weird I and mean, in fact we could have done a reading of either one of those and had enough to to go on so it's 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 massive in scope
1: you'll find so if that, you uh, yeah. you'll you'll find if you talk to anyone who's really familiar with wolf that um those sections become highly contentious they are about as contentious as uh, the further dune books not counting the Brian Herbert ones, everyone hates those, um, <laughs> rightly so. Um, but talking yeah. about the the six books of the primary Dune cycle, there are going to be people who swear by only Dune, Dune and Dune only. Um, I'm as close to one of those as you can get for this. Book of the New Sun, I think, far surpasses all the stuff that comes after. Then there's people who want um, up to the end of the first like cycle of Dune. That would be basically up to Earth of the New Sun in this case. So only one additional book um you'll find people who love and adore long son and short son you'll find people who think they're terrible you'll um and again can't emphasize enough ultimately that's fine he separated them out the way that he did partly on purpose there is there is a conscious level of the book of the new son are these four books if you only read these four you're going to get something different but not subordinate to the read that involves Earth of the New Sun. If you read up to Earth Mm -hmm. of the New Sun, you're going to get something different but not subordinate to that which involves Book of the Long Sun. So that's another thing that I think – because I was talking to my brother about this. A lot of people get scared away from things like this because they'll see, you know, umpteen number of books and, oh, my God, I don't want to have to commit to – you really don't. He he structures it well enough so that at any given breakage point, like I wouldn't read the first three books of Book the New Sun and then stop, but if you read the four, that's an okay stopping point. Earth is an okay stopping point, et cetera, et cetera. Um.
0: Yeah. So I totally agree. By the way, except for the Dune stuff, I really like the prequ- the sequels. Um, you like the well? The well no, I, I like. Stuff.
1: I was about to say, I like the sequels as well. I thought you were about to say that you like the Brian Herbert stuff. And I was about to say, like, Eden, this whole episode's changed. We're going to have to kill each other. But no, we don't. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) No, you get a big worm, dude. But yeah, whatever.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so so now that we've introduced Gene and the books themselves, I kind of want to take us through the six W's, the six W questions to introduce the books themselves. And then we'll wrap and we can go to episode one. So first W, and I structured it however I want, I know there's like an official order, but I did it in how it makes sense, is what? So we know that we're going to talk about the Book of the New Sun, but what is the Book of the New Sun about? So this book takes place, it's never really quite spelled out, but probably over a million years um, in the future, when the Earth has been rebuilt and reforged and terraformed many times. For example, the moon is green because it's covered with forests. The shape of the continents has changed. Rivers have been diverted, mountains have been leveled, and new mountains raised, and so on. The earth currently is in decline. It used to be the center of this possibly galaxy-spanning empire that brought in a lot of alien technology and aliens themselves to Earth, but then that empire collapsed. And all that's left of it is its skeleton, or rather its um, nervous system, right? You can communicate vast distances, but a lot of the muscle has atrophied. Because of that, Earth is littered with forgotten, and extremely powerful alien technology that very few um, remember how to operate, but it still has an effect. So for example, those communication devices littered all across this book, but they're never called communication devices. They work, they allow people to communicate, but no one's going to say radio, right? The structure of society is semi-feudal. There's an Utark who rules within his citadel, the House Absolute. He has nobles that swear allegiance to him called exultants. And it's actually hinted very powerfully that they're not completely human. They're much taller, for example. And below them, there's a very rigid and stratified structure of society with ranks like optimates, which are kind of like magnates, armagers, which are soldier nobles, and so on and so forth. It's also a guild system which divides up trades, but not like, like you would think, you know, a baker's guild or a printer's guild, but rather the guild of the torturers or the guild of the witches and so on. Um, the location is a city called Nessus and following some clues in the book. And by the way, spoilers, <laughs> we're going to spoil the whole thing. And we're sometimes going to jump ahead right, to stuff that you can only understand later, just, be, just so it makes more sense. So in the middle of the first book, we get the location of the city of Nessus and it's south of the equator, but not far from the equator. It's nestled on a massive river, which um, Gaiol, which its delta goes out to sea. And it's in thick forests all around it. Putting two and two together and also remembering that Gene Wolfe adored Borre, we can come to the realization that this is Rio de Janeiro. Um, but just one million years in the future. This is a theory, by the way. No one has proven it. But it's extremely heavily hinted at in the books. Don't worry, there'll be some stuff that isn't heavily hinted at and is completely contentious, but this is not one of them. The last thing, which is very important, um, there are two sources of political unrest in this society. One is a war in the north with a mysterious and unknowable enemy, and the other is with a group of rebels led by a man named. Vodalos, um, who is shadowing the Utarks forces and trying to bring about a social revolution for the exultants, right? He's trying to rally the nobility against the Utark. So that's the what of
1: things. I had to do bite wanna, my tongue so yeah. hard. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, I know. I know, I know, I know. I, I had to skip like a minute. <laughs> the whole time from. I was like, and what's interesting, I'm like, no, Langton, don't do it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, We God. want this episode uh, to be relatively short, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
1: um,
0: okay. So, let's do who?
1: Um, let's do who? So. Uh, how, how best to. Mm. All right. So. I know exactly how to start this thought. So the main character is someone named Severian. Severian is quite simply a member of the Torturer's Guild. And for the vast majority of the story, this is all you really need to know. Things will be changing about your perception of him. Things will be changing about your understanding of how old he is, how many times he's lived. Is this really Severian? All you need to hold on to is Severian is talking and Severian is a member of the Torturous Guild. These things are immutable. These things are not ever untrue. Um, That statement, I think, folds out to cover basically the other main characters as well. That thought of, you will be given something to hang your hat on with all of the characters. A lot of things around those uh, few elements will change, and... The deeper you read, even just the longer you read, even just following the plot, you'll get a lot of deceptions, a lot of double crosses. There's like any number of great uh stories, you know, you get the Count of Monte Cristo influence coming in here of like multiple identities that very much plays a huge part in basically every single major and minor character. There are very few characters in this book that have a static identity. Um,
0: yeah, so... One thing about Severian in addition to what you just said, two things. Three things. Sorry. (laughs) One
1: (laughs) try not to say the whole book. That's exactly what I was running into.
0: No, no, no. Totally. (laughs) Totally. One, he's an asshole. Oh, yeah. I hate him. He's he's a bitch. I I, I he sucks. He sucks so much. (laughs) He sucks. He's so he sucks to the characters in the book. Like he does really bad things to them and he doesn't kill. He might be like a psychopath, right? Like he doesn't have any idea of good versus evil. Sociopath, sorry. Um, he And he also does bad things to you, the reader. Like he's condescending and he thinks you're stupid and he doesn't want to tell you the whole truth. And that's the second thing about Severian. Severian lies constantly. He is always lying. Now, when I say lying... Nothing that he says is the opposite of what he says. Like Langdon said, there's always something to hang your hat on. So if, for example, he says, this is a dog, then that's a dog. But if he says, I don't know where that dog came from, he's probably lying to you or not telling you the whole truth. In fact, one of the basic acts of reading this book is... Figuring out when Severian is lying and when he's telling you the truth. (laughs) This
1: ultimately ultimately becomes the big engine of of reading and rereading the book. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's moments where uh, you'll... The shortest snapshot in the second chapter, we'll get to this later. He says some stuff. I literally got up to about 12 pages of notes and then stopped. Not everyone has to do that, but that's the level of, like, this motherfucker is lying um, that you will encounter with Severian.
0: Yeah. So the third thing is, as stated in the beginning of the book, Severian has a perfect memory. Now, this is true. Severian Mm -hmm. does not forget, which is why when he says in the book to another character or to you, I have forgotten, he's lying to you. Okay, If he wants to remember something, unless he was knocked unconscious, there's all sorts of caveats, right? But basically, he cannot forget. So there are points in the book when there's a big question that you want answered, and he'll tell you, but I don't remember the explanation. He's lying. But he does have perfect memory. So when he describes something, and he says, this is what happened, that's probably what happened. But there's just a lot of context and a lot of other things that he's not telling you about or is outright lying to you about. This,
1: this touches slightly on a structural element of the book that is, is part of the what. The book is framed as him talking to you. This is important to remember. You're not in his head where only truth would live. You are being told by Severian, and that's where you can get some really at times quite wild rubs which yeah. i think actually leads us quite deftly into um the the how of the book i mean so it, it, by nature actually the the nature of severian plays out into the structure of the book it is precisely why the book um works the way that it does uh there are going to be moments in the book where you're not sure which Severian you're actually necessarily following. Don't worry about that statement. Mm-hmm. If that makes no sense, we'll get to it. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get to that part. Um, yeah. But this nature of Severian has perfect memory, which is true. He sometimes misleads you or people around him. That's also true. And the nature of characters sometimes not being who they say they are, or being other people in addition to who they say they are. That's another big one, is it's not just that char- it's never that characters aren't who they say. It's more often that they are additionally other things or other people. Um, that notion, which is very much drawn from Borja, is the primary engine of the how. Of this story, you'll never—you'll very rarely, actually, not never—you'll very rarely be given an outright untruth. Instead, you'll be given—it feels like witnessing ruins emerging from sand. There's a, a gust of wind; something emerges from uh, from down below, and you can glimpse a structure, but it's not always fully present. The book is not the story of those structures, however, the book is the story of just a journey across the desert like all like all stories are. This is this mode of how is very important for approaching this book in a way that won't frustrate you um, he weaves in. Those underlying structures, being it anything from the true identities of characters, how many true identities do characters have, which layer is the most important for parsing this conversation. These are at root, um, admittedly, the most fun parts of the book for people who for people who love the book. Um, when you get together with people who have read and love this book, very rarely do you talk about the overarching plot to unseat the autarch. That's not really a spoiler. You can just sort of assume. Oh, you have a torturer. You have a you have a an autocrat. Okay, I can. I've read one book. I know how that goes. I literally forget that that's the plot most of the time. Instead, you tend to get enraptured and focus on again precisely the the how the how of this book. Like, how is it unfolding? Why is it structured the way that it is? Um, but it takes, it takes lots of turns is how I would describe it. Not in the way that, so not, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm half talking around myself because this book is a giant knot.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think the important thing to realize here and, and here the comparison, I think that's best made is Socrates, that Wolf, unlike Severian, Severian lies to you because he's an asshole and because he has an agenda. That he's trying to promote. He's he's read he's writing this book for his contemporaries. It's 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 a political work. But Wolf is lying to you, and he also lies to you, um, to teach you something, to hint at a truth that he wants to bear forth, like Socrates. Socrates often made fun of his interlocutors, lied to them, used irony to in a famous quote from Socrates himself or, you know, via Plato or whatever, to birth ideas, right? He says, I'm a, um, a midwife. We're helping people give birth to ideas from their own thoughts instead of just handing it to them. That's what Wolf is doing. He's hinting towards ideas and giving you smoke and mirrors to make you use your brain to cut through that those smoke and mirrors Interestingly, I chose Mirrors, right? That's a big part of the book. Um, <laughs> like, Ooh, that's to get to the truth. Yeah. Um, To get to the truth that he's trying to bring forth. And that truth, and this is very important, is Christian. Oh, yeah. Um, Gene Wolfe was a devout Catholic.
1: He was almost like psychopathically believer. Catholic. And like. this...
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And this book is um, extremely about Christ and redemption and resurrection and all of those things. So when you're reading it, first of all, whenever you see a name that is sort of like a saint, that's because you're supposed to draw attributes from the saint to the character. And it gives you more hints on the character, but also the themes, the ideas that are being communicated are. Christian now from how I want to go just slightly back to when (laughs) and even though we've already dated Nessus and the setting there's something very important that I have to get across here time jumps in the book without letting you know that that's occurred yeah that happens in two ways one to the characters in the book. That is, the characters experience some sort of time shift and it's never detailed to us and possibly the characters don't know themselves that this has occurred. Although Severian probably does know, he just doesn't tell anyone and doesn't tell us. Um, And sometimes it happens within the narrative. That is, the narrative stops and then it starts in the future. It's never by accident or never just for the aesthetics of it there's something being told to you right other than that and this is a big 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 spoiler but i feel like we can't talk about the book without explaining it there's a time loop happening okay specifically with severian severian acts in the books present but has also acted in the books past and will act in the book's future by virtue of some of the technologies that he encounters, but also because he is holy, lacking a better term, right? Magical, technological, destined. He has the ability, whether he uses it willingly or not, to move through time in in all sorts of ways. So whenever a character says, a great man once said, they're probably talking about Severian himself, whether they know that they are or they're not. This explains a lot <laughs> when you read this book. A lot of the stuff that Severian is able to do or know or understand is because he has already lived the events of the book several times. This is fact, this is revealed in Earth. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, so to to finish off to finish off your thought that Earth of the New Sun. The primary thing that it answers is it explicitly tells you who severian is and how he works um which winds up it makes this book very different if you've read versus haven't read that so a worthwhile caveat is that you can read this book without that knowledge and it simply drastically changes what it is that you're reading um most people will read it with that bit of information, though. Even even diehards like me who tend to try to think of Book of the New Sun very purely as just the four books. Because it um, there are moments where it seems like literally nothing else could explain it. This also, in fact, loops back to something that I mentioned with The Who. Because uh, one slight meta comment, all of the different methodologies and structures of this book are bound together. This is ultimately why this book is considered potentially the greatest work of science fiction ever made. One of the best books of the 20th century period, like regardless of its genre placement, it's one of the very best books that was written in the 20th century because, because of that incredible solidity, we can't talk about when it's set without talking about who is in the book because that influences it, which touches on why it's structured the way that it is, which talks about how, how it functions. So acknowledging that and zooming back in, yeah, the when winds up getting adjusted because there are a number of times when characters that Severian is talking to are Severian, and he's hanging out at the crypt of another Severian. Um, Severian and time are so deeply bound in this book. So deeply bound. Like There's very rarely a moment you get a reference to another time period or to certain strange figures that isn't explicitly tied to him. And this again loops back to uh the structural element of because Severian is Jesus <laughs> and Jesus yeah. is at the heart of everything. Yeah, you're best so, off ignoring that part. Just, you know, unless you're Catholic, if you're Catholic, you'll love that part. If you're not, feel free to ignore that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the when flows very naturally into the well, and while we're we've we've discussed nessus as well there's also a bunch of other things that you need to know about how places work in this book so just like time is fucked up so is space because of this alien technology that's lying on in fact time and space usually get confused together I'm not going to go into it. It's actually explored in the first book and we'll probably touch upon it. But the method of travel that this empire used to use is FTL. And it's FTL faster than light. Sorry, for those of you who don't know what FTL is. Um, And it's FTL via dimensional travel. So basically you use light to escape this dimension and then return to it at a different point. So it fucks with time and space. The other thing is, Severian is going to lie to you a lot about what things are. Sometimes he doesn't know, like he himself doesn't understand the place that he's seeing, but oftentimes he does understand and he will lie to you or be coy about it. One example, two examples, sorry. One, the citadel in which the book begins and in which houses the guild of the torturers is actually a rocket ship or rather uh, a bunch of rocket ships. And this is alluded to by Severian talking about propulsion chambers uh, in the basement of the structure, and describing the walls as being made of metal. And then later on with a rocket actually taking off from the area in the city where the Citadel is located. But he'll never tell you that it's a rocket. Now, does he know? Yes. Because he calls the basement a propulsion chamber, right? So he knows that it's supposed to propel something. He's not stupid. Severian is very, very smart. He's just lying to you. But then, in the location inside the citadel, the Atrium of Time, which we'll get into, he describes this garden, this atrium, as being filled with dials, like sundials. Those are satellite dishes. Now, does Severian know that they're satellite dishes? I think that's where he also doesn't know that they're satellite dishes, right? He says... Their purpose has been lost to time. And I think that's real for him. He doesn't know what satellites are. So he's very clever on one hand, but he's also lost a lot of what we considered obvious knowledge. And um, he'll describe it as best as he can, but it oftentimes will have to piece together what a place means and what it does. One last thing on place. Severian grew up sheltered. He grew up as a foundling by the guild of torturers and the guild of torturers is, and this is where it, we start to get crazy, right? Um, depending on who you speak to, is either a relic of a uh, fallen social order or literally in the past, right? But whichever one is true, um doesn't know a lot of things that are common in the world. And he asks a lot of questions like a child. You should be thinking about truth from the mouth of babes, right? Um, Those who are ignorant can know the truth more readily and so on.
1: Man, it is a lot more challenging to talk about this stuff without talking directly about the book. But we're doing it. Um, uh, I think that...
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: uh, I I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted at, again, this is more of a meta commentary at how, at how, again, just the, the solidity of the book um, that every little component is tied up in every single other component um, in that perfect Delusian way. There's no top or bottom. This all just, it's, it's one big thing, um, yeah. which, which in a just... way actually touches on the, the last little, bit that we wanted to talk about with this book, which is the whole, why did he make it? Why did he make it the way that he did? Why do we read it? Why do people like it? Um, And it, it at root is that component um, that on his end, it seems he has other work that explores um, Christian allegory. So that that certainly isn't the only uh, driving factor on some level. The driving factor has to be that this is his peak literary accomplishment as and potentially one of the peak literary accomplishments of all of science fiction. As we mentioned before, he came at the tail end of the golden age, but more strongly had his roots during the whole slipstream era and psychedelic sci fi era of of the 60s going into the 70s. -hmm. Always sat kind of a little catty corner. He had a lot more traditional traditionalist flair and also, um, a literary flair that seemed borrowed from the earlier 20th century, things like Borges or whatever, um, or, uh, Joyce in a lot of ways, rather than say, um, you know, the, the, like, uh, been down so long, it's starting to look like up, look like up to me, which was a big influence on slipstream writers. Um, so there's a very clear sense of, just on Gene Wolfe's level, why is this book written in the, like, almost psychopathically dense and florid way that it is? Not florid in terms of prose style, although it is florid that way, but florid in terms of its, like, fertility. Um, it feels at root, like he wanted to prove that he was the best to ever do it. Um, and, you know, goddamn if he wasn't maybe right. Um, <laughs> like, like... The strong, you will really only find two camps in greater sci-fi, and it's this and Dune. These are the only two that really duke it out for the best of all time. There's a case to be made for either, and really anyone who brings up one can make a pretty fucking compelling argument. Um, now, this actually leads into the, why do we care, though? Um, on one end, if you like books, period, not even sci-fi, just books. This is a thrilling fucking piece of construction, just piece of yeah. creation. The way that all of it flows together feels as... Th- there are things that I find out rereading it now. I've read this probably like eight times. It it seems endlessly fertile. It's the exact kind of thing that if you really love books that you love about Borges, that you love about Joyce, that you love about... Um, Ursula K. Le Guin that you like really any book whatsoever is that sense of like it sparks something. There's the second bit and this is a lot smaller and I think it gets overlooked sometimes uh, when talking about the book to people who haven't read it, to people who have read it. This is actually a very cherished part. Some things he d- puts in are just little like riddle like games they're not necessary for the plot. They're just, on some level, they're fun. It's just, oh, he. Bi- what do you think this thing is that he's talking about? And it doesn't really change what mm-hmm. happened. You know, I shot somebody and it killed him. But as Eden mentioned, r slash Gene Wolf is hyperactive. They had a breakthrough about Fifth Head of Cerberus like two years ago. Like, so on some level... The fun of it is, like, there are mysteries about books that are decades old that people are only now putting together. A fun little dork-ass galaxy brain one that I was telling Eden about. Um, So in Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is not related to... Which is maybe related to this, but don't worry. Um... (laughs) A clone, a clone is in a, that's, that's a whole other fucking thing. A clone is in a (laughs) library. The minute I say a clone, it's like, okay, maybe that's Severian, but whatever. A clone's in a library looking for a book from his ancestor and he's looking in the W.O. section. And they say that pretty explicitly. What's another decent name for a clone? What's something that ties to clone? Well, clones are copied genetics. So genes. So gene W.O. And someone asked him at a convention, is this. Are you saying that the clone is Gene Wolf and he leaned forward and was like, no one has ever gotten that. And that was like 25 years after the book had come out. So I mentioned to Eden, both of these books. So Book of the New Sun's traditionally sold in two volumes. One is Shadow and Claw. The other one, Sword and Citadel. Each book has two volume or two uh, books in it. Or each volume has two books. There we go. <laughs> but you get this repetition of S and C. Now, four letters away from s is t u v w four letters away from c is d e f g so we get a slightly time displaced GW out of the titles that repeats across two books. Now this would sound galaxy brain and just Langdon got really high to anyone who hasn't read Gene Wolfe in which if you have, you go motherfucker was referencing his own names in his books and the time loop thing, Gene. Yeah. And it's like, you don't need to know that that's not, that's not necessary. If that's deliberate, it's not necessary, but it's, it's fun. And that's at root these books aren't about being smarter than you. They aren't about waving your dick around. They aren't about being the most literary motherfucker on campus at root. This shit is so fun. Yeah. You get dope sword fights and crazy brain scratching riddles. And I think like it's everything I love about sci-fi in one book, literally all of it.
0: I, I super agree. And I think there's also the inventiveness of it, like the, the technology being used, the animals encountered, the different aliens, and all that stuff. But to, to add on to what you said, maybe wrap this up and then go to music. I think this book is okay. I'll start over. <laughs> Some books are weird and convoluted just to be weird and convoluted, and that's okay. So they're just like a mind fuck, right? They're like watching Primer. The movie, right? The point is that it's complicated and it's a brain twister. And some books are weird and convoluted because they try to deal with a topic that is very subtle or complex or hard to write about. For example, House of Leaves is about anxiety and fear, right? And history and stuff like that. Um, Some books are both. And those are the very rare books that we want to talk about here. They're weird and convoluted and literary, both because it's a fun little puzzle and it's a brain twister, but also because they're trying to talk about things that are really complicated. And with Gene Wolfe, the book is about God. It's about not just God as... An abstract metaphysical concept, but it's about the journey of man towards God, towards compassion and empathy and love and away from, you know, carnality and vice and sin. And that's extremely complicated and it's extremely subtle. And, you know, he could have just, you know, written like some Christian allegory and called it a day, but by making us Uh, you know, walk through these loops and work for our understanding. He's trying to get us to engage with the material. I like to ask questions like, why is Severian the hero? Why is he, spoilers, the conciliator? Why is he this figure? Um, And I think you'll find that as weird and convoluted as these books are, and they fucking are, they're that for a very good reason. And that reason is to make you engage with what they want to tell to you about reality instead of just reading them passively. And it makes you an active reader. So with that being said, um, I want to take you to some music. And of course, I have to pick something crazy and weird, right? So a few months ago, a band released a band called Karanir released oh, an God, album. Yes, I love so that album. album. <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually not going to give a track from this album, but it's a different project by one of the guys in Karanir. So Karanir is like grindcore plus 8 bit plus chip tune and a bunch of other crazy shit, death metal, um, Black in metal. like a video game. Yeah. A lot of stuff in this like video game, uh, setting that well, the guys they're only in a video
1: game setting now due to an yeah. evil entity that yeah, they're, oh God, I love that band. Sorry. I can nerd out about them forever. I love them. Yeah. So one
0: half of Cara went and made a solo project specifically Gary called gone mage and it has released its first album. I hope not the only one. uh, Actually, yesterday, uh, Friday, May the seventh, and this is like the chilled out and yet still very heavy sibling of Karanir's album. So it emphasizes the electronic stuff. It gives them more room inside the composition, but it also be very very grindcore and death metal, and it rules. And black metal, of course. It absolutely rules. The cover is amazing. The music is great. I already ordered the shirt because it looks sick. And these guys are really people to watch, right? Both Karanir and Con Mage. Really interesting stuff being done with this meld of electronic music and heavier stuff. Um, the album is called Mystical Extraction, and I urge you to check it out in full. Langdon, any last thoughts here?
1: Uh, no, except I had not heard about this record, and I'm definitely going to be listening to this whole thing once we're done.
0: Yeah, and also maybe Fox Averian. I think we'll end each episode by saying that. I, I hate the guy. I, I, I really hate him. Um, I admire so that... him,
1: but in a in a hateful way, if that makes sense.
0: Totally makes sense, yeah. Okay, so this is um The Gullying and the Purple Hoax by Gone Mage. See you next time.